Okay, I think we'll get started. Uh, thanks everyone so much for joining and thanks to IAS USA for hosting this dialogue. Uh, my name is Meredith Clement. I am an assistant professor at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center here in New Orleans. Uh, and I'm here today with Dr. Susanna Nagy, who is also trained in infectious diseases. She's an associate professor at Duke University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Nagy is an expert in HIV and viral hepatitis. And my clinical and research focus is in the prevention of HIV and STDs. And so today the title of our dialogue is when the going gets tough, the tough keep going. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on hepatitis C and STI testing and care. Um, so before we get started, I have just a few housekeeping items to go over. Uh, we're really happy to take any questions, but please do use the Q&A button to ask questions um, and keep in mind that the chat feature has been disabled. And so the way this will, we'll try to make this work is about 40 minutes of uh, discussion between Susanna and myself. Um, but again, please ask any questions, especially relevant questions as they come up and we'll try to get to those relevant questions. We may save some of the other uh, less relevant questions for the end. But, you know, if, if you're thinking that you have that question, other people probably have that question too. So please, please, we, we would love to take questions. Um, and then uh, remember that this dialogue is not available for CME, but it will be available uh, by webcast and podcast after the broadcast. And then uh, a final reminder is that, as we all know, things are changing very rapidly uh, with respect to the epi and research landscape of COVID-19. And so just keep in mind that the information and updates we're sharing today um, will quickly become uh, a little outdated. Um, so most of you are probably following the numbers pretty closely, uh, but just to sort of think about where we are this day and time, uh, November 23rd, I just want to take a quick look um, of the numbers. So as of this morning, according to the New York Times and the COVID tracking project in the United States, we have more than 12.3 million people infected. Uh, we have roughly 84,000 people hospitalized, and we've had more than 256,000 um, deaths attributed to COVID-19. And then I think probably also, also um, many of you are aware that late last week, the CDC recommended against any Thanksgiving gathering or traveling plans um, outside of the people in your immediate household. Um, and so kind of we know, I guess, with the, the numbers where they are and the projected numbers, um, the outlook for the next few months is, is particularly grim. Um, but there is light at the end of the tunnel, we think. And Dr. Nagy, do you want to um, go over some of kind of the highlights with respect to the vaccine um, studies that we've seen uh, published or press release recently? No, absolutely. And I, I do agree with you. I think... Um, there, there's been the trickling of good news. And I think um, here really over the past few weeks, we've heard some really um, fantastic news that I think, I think is something that we should all be very excited about. And I, and I do think it's important to talk about because yeah, I think there's a lot of concern for folks out there. We talk about how long it normally takes for vaccine trials to get through um, the typical path through FDA approval. And I think there's been a lot of concern of how could this happen so quickly and yet be safe. And I think it's really important to talk about the fact that the FDA has always had different mechanisms for moving particular drugs or devices through more quickly if there's an urgent need. And the EUA process is a process that I think many of us have never had to utilize 
um, at, during our, our um, you know, during our lifetime. And so this is a, it's a bit of a different um, uh, approach to accelerating discovery, getting things very quickly um, into the clinic when there is a public health emergency. And as we know, um, the Secretary of HHS declared uh, the pandemic a, a public health emergency um, actually in January of 2020. I can't believe that we have almost come a full year. Um, and, you know, I think there was much hope that we would see vaccines um, available uh, by the end of 2020. And in fact, it sounds like we may just meet that deadline um, with at least one vaccine. So, and we've certainly seen a lot of movement. So I'll run through these really quickly. And then if folks have questions, we can certainly come back to them. And I was also gonna quickly run through just, I do think the FDA also, I think probably because of concern and just to provide some additional guidance in addition to the guidance that the FDA put out for licensing and approval um, for a vaccine is they also put out guidance around what does a company need to bring forward to get an EUA or to at least be reviewed for an EUA. So I'll, I'll go through that quickly because we do know per the press release from Pfizer that they met those criteria to submit for the EUA, which they did. And we now know um, that the, that the um, advisory committee uh, will meet on December 10th. And so we expect to hear of an approval probably by the end of the year, given that meeting on December 10th, right? So we'll go to the first one. So Pfizer was the, was the first one where we initially heard some efficacy data and then an update to that efficacy data once they got some additional uh, additional cases. So this is an mRNA-based vaccine. This is in phase three study. Um, and, and as I mentioned, their efficacy report, uh, just I think a couple of, it was last week, um, was 95% efficacy. And that was based on 170 confirmed COVID cases. And of those 170 confirmed COVID cases, in, um, in over, I believe it was 43,000 participants who have received the vaccine, which is again, a two shot vaccine series um, over a month period is 160 of those cases, 162 of those cases in the placebo arm and eight of them were in the vaccination arm. So it's, I mean, very impressive and does in fact meet uh, the, the, the requirement or the criteria for EUA which was that your vaccine has over 50% efficacy. So they certainly checked that box, right? Um, the other thing is that the FDA says that they wanted for the EUA submission to have at least five severe cases of COVID in the placebo arm. And in this case, they in fact had 10 severe cases of COVID um, in the study and, um, and uh, nine of them were in the placebo arm and one was in the vaccine arm. So again, showing that you don't just prevent the infection, but you in fact appear, although small numbers at this point, appear to also decrease the severity of disease if someone does in fact uh, develop the infection. So I think these are fantastic, this fantastic news. And the other kind of box they have to check is having at least two months of follow-up from the last, from completing the vaccine series. And that is the that is the threshold that they crossed just recently, and that is why they submitted their packet to the FDA for EUA. And again, we'll hear about that on December 10th. The other one that we uh, have been following very closely, of course, is the Moderna uh, vaccine. This is also an mRNA-based vaccine. They also have a phase three trial called the COVE trial. And their interim data, again, released per their DSMB last week, um, was, uh, again, 94.5% efficacy. I mean, honestly, as healthcare providers, um, as I mentioned, as citizens, as 
parents and, and, and spouses, I mean, this is really fantastic news. I think many of us were afraid to hope for an efficacy this high. And so I think this is very exciting. Again, they had 95 cases, 90 of them in the placebo arm, five in the vaccine arm, and also had 11 cases of severe COVID, all of whom, uh, or all of which occurred in the placebo arm. Um, so again, just kind of highlighting uh, what, kind of all checking those different boxes. And I think Moderna still has some time, presumably for follow-up to be able to, um, to hit that final two-month follow-up after the vaccine series. And then maybe quickly, I'll go to the AstraZeneca, which we know is the other one that we are all following very closely. Uh, just reported out today, we have very little data on this one so far. Over 23,000 uh, people have been vaccinated across the globe um, and 131 cases of COVID. They reported out some interesting differences in efficacy. So overall, 70%. Um, but if they look at this, they're, they're actually testing two dosing strategies. One is looking at the kind of high dose, um, uh, also a two-dose series. All of these are two-dose series. A high dose um, times two, and then they're looking at a, um, a half dose followed by a high dose. And interestingly, there's a very different efficacy in these two arms so far. I don't think we fully understand what that means. 62% when you get the full dose times two and 90% efficacy when you get the, um, uh, the, the, the half dose followed by the full dose. So I think that's data that's still emerging, I would say. But, but I think, you know, it sounds like Pfizer's going to um, you know, have its day um, in terms of uh, hearing um, in terms of the committee, uh, advisory committee, hearing them out on the uh, 10th, that will be, I think it's really important for, for folks to know that that will be a public, uh, that at least will be pu a public part of that um, hearing. So people can, not hearing, but that, that meeting. So people can certainly log in. And then for folks who follow this really closely, um, the, uh, the FDA will provide the meeting materials two days in advance. Um, and so, uh, so you can certainly log in and grab that material and look at what they'll be reviewing at that meeting. Um, so, you know, I think, I think a lot to look forward to over the next few weeks. Yeah, and Susanna, we already have a question from our dear friend, Chuck Hicks. Uh, there are no precedents for mRNA vaccines in humans. And he's exactly right. This is a totally new technology. Um, do you think there, there are any concerns with this approach to vaccination? Um, and I, you know, there, there are requirements for two months of safety data, I believe. Um, do you have any other concerns? It'll all be reviewed. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's as with any novel approach to a therapy, um, you certainly want to ensure that there are the appropriate uh, checks and balances and ensuring that there is appropriate safety. I mean, I, I personally don't have a significant concern about the um, mRNA approach my, myself. I actually think it's a really exciting approach. And I think it's very interesting that it just so happened that this technology was coming forward um, right in time for this urgent need for COVID uh, vaccines to be developed. Um, and here we are with those two mRNA-based vaccines moving forward very quickly and, and, and very promising. So I think, um, I think it's critical though, again, because it's a novel approach to, to, um, to vaccination is to, uh, is to make sure that we see those safety data. And I, I do have full confidence that we'll see that data and that will continue to emerge. I mean, I think the other thing that's really important to understand per the EUA is that for anyone dosed per the EUA, because this continues even after an EUA to be an investigational vaccine, is that the FDA will require that those companies um, track the safety um, um, in long-term in terms of any adverse events, whether short or long-term. So we'll, we'll learn this as we go along, but, um, but I can tell you that I think it's super exciting, this new, um, this new approach to, to vaccination. And I, for one, am, am, am excited to see um, uh, you know, where, the, where the data leads us. 
Well, and Susie and I agree, it's so remarkable. And I just want to highlight one thing. So with the, the really fantastic efficacy in these studies, Dr. Fauci makes the point um, that he's hopeful that, that this high efficacy will overcome some of the vaccine hesitancy that we've seen kind of when the population has been surveyed. And, you know, there's kind of this uh, culture of medical mistrust right now um, among a lot of the American public. And so, you know, if a vaccine was maybe 50 or 60% efficacious, people may not be as willing to get it. But now we know with these really exciting numbers, um, you know, thinking that hopefully that will overcome some of the hesitancy uh, on the part of the, the public. I think that's going to be huge, actually. I think we know that in order to, to really have an impact on the pandemic, we need to vaccinate well above 50, 60, 70% of the population, right? Now, I think it may, it may be interesting, and I'm hopeful this is true, as, as healthcare workers, we will be leading the way, um, I, you know, in, in terms of the prioritization, right? This is not going to be accessible to the general public for m many, many months, right? We know that. We know in terms of the prioritization, these, the, the prioritization recommendations have been released by the CDC. All state um, HHS uh, uh, um, groups are putting these forward. And so I do think that we will see healthcare workers, particularly those at, at the greatest risk taking care of people uh, with COVID, um, are going to be in the front line of, of getting these vaccines. And I think we can show the public uh, that this is something that we believe in. Um, and I hope that in that they, they will understand that, um, that, 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 that if we can trust the vaccine, so can they. Um, but I do agree with you that there's going to have to be a lot of education out there about why these things were able to move so quickly and that there was not cutting of corners, um, but that there are ways to believe it or not, the federal government can do things quickly when it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. And so I think we could spend the whole time talking about the ethics of how you roll out these vaccines. Um, but just for the sake of time, just a couple of other updates. So also last week, um, it was announced or, or there was uh, EUA given status given by the FDA to the Lucera COVID-19 all-in-one test kit. And so just to sort of briefly mention that it's a, it's a molecular test, I think as probably most people know, um, it's probably going to be available with pres for, with a prescription only, but also in clinics, doctor's offices, urgent cares. Um, it has pretty good test characteristics. So it's about 94% sensitive and 98% specific. But those test characteristics were determined in a really small patient population. So there are other studies, kind of larger clinical studies that are ongoing in Florida. Um, but we expect it to be available to the general public in 2021. Um, and, and then just kind of on the topic of testing, I did want to touch on because the holidays are coming up, um, you know, this kind of move, move by a lot of our friends and family to get tested in order to go celebrate with family members. And I mentioned the CDC guidance or, or rather really a warning um, against kind of these large family gatherings or, or gatherings with people outside of your households. And so, you know, I, I've had friends and family talk to me about, can I just get tested before I celebrate Thanksgiving? And, and I think we just all need to be aware of the limitations of that approach um, in that, you know, certainly you could already be on your way to developing an infection, but just not test positive yet. Um, you could be exposed after you test or after you get your test results back. And so just to kind of, I, I guess, in what, uh, echoing again, Dr. Fauci, you know, we have a vaccine, the 
there's a light at the end of the tunnel, the cavalry is coming, but we can't put our weapons down yet, right? We need to stay vigilant. We need to exercise caution. We as providers and everyone on this call needs to continue to kind of counsel our friends and family um, that we're not there yet. And especially, I think there's a lot of fear about what we're gonna see in kind of the December, January months um, when, when people are, are, you know, there's more gathering indoors, it's colder outside and, and all these things. So kind of just staying strong, remaining vigilant, exercising caution. Um, yeah. And so on that topic uh, of, of can keep going when the going gets tough, which is the title of our talk, um, Susanna, I'd like to ask you about some of the challenges we might be seeing with respect to hepatitis C and B testing and treatment kind of in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So kind of getting into what, what we said we were going to talk about during right. hour, now that we're 15 minutes in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I think uh, we, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, providers on 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 this uh, on this um, program, and uh, I think we all know exactly what's happened for our patients um, when this all started, right? So when it started, uh, and I think this was true across the across the country, obviously across the world, is that there was a lot of concern about how to see patients safely. There are patients were concerned about coming into their providers' offices, coming into clinics and and, and hospital-based clinics, or or coming in for their mammograms, coming in for their liver cancer screening, and so. There was a big move to either cancel things, delay them, um, postpone them, or to and or to switch over to kind of telehealth visits. And I think we all really, you know, it was really great to see how quickly health systems were able to pivot um, to 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 telehealth and to whether you know whether by telephone or by by virtual. This was really something that was amazing to see happen. And I think there were so many positives to that. Right. However. Um, in that positive of, of really being dynamic and switching to virtual care, I think what we didn't see was at the same time, the consideration, I think one as many of us, I don't think ever would have dreamed that, that we would be almost a year into this and having this um, conversation, to be honest with you. Or maybe I'll just say that I was not one of those people who had that uh, amazing level of foresight. So, you know, I think we all thought it's probably going to be a couple of months we'll postpone. And then a couple of months came and went and we realized, oh my gosh, we need to figure out how to actually get people in. So we could still do virtual care, but we really need to figure out how do we get them in for their mammograms, for their liver cancer screening, for their hepatitis C tests? How do we get them in for their blood tests? And I think we actually you know the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease meeting just finished virtually, which actually was a huge success. And we saw a number of presentations showing exactly this thing, which is, you know, when the pandemic hit in March, April, and May, things shut down. And with that shutdown, we saw a significant, I mean, and it's like a drop off of a cliff, a significant decrease in HCV tests, hepatitis B tests, HIV tests, hepatitis B vaccination series being completed, and prescriptions for DAAs, uh, right? So, and we know, um, although those, this was not presented, but we, we've all talked about how we need to look at this, HCC um, screenings being delayed and things like that, right? So, you know, those data also showed that those numbers are starting to come up again. And my guess is that's a conversion, one, to more in-person visits overall. But also, I mean, at least in my clinic, we've continued to kind of give patients an option, but to try to do this as a hybrid approach, right? So, um, so, so bringing them in to get their lab visits because we, we clearly saw a significant impact in all of these really key metrics um, regarding testing and treatment and screening. And the biggest issue for us is, you know, the WHO has very clear timelines for every country 
And in fact, those have been kind of transmitted down to every state in the United States for meeting the goals to achieve um, HCV elimination. And this is a pretty big setback for many of our states and certainly for the United States as a whole in, in achieving that. Yeah, and I was looking at our, so our hospital, I'm a, I practice at University Medical Center in New Orleans, which is the safety net hospital in downtown New Orleans. And uh, we have a task force dedicated to HIV and hep C testing. Um, in the ER, you know, the opt-out approach and, and in our clinics. And so we, we follow those numbers pretty closely and our hepatitis C testing rate is usually 600 or so tests per month. Um, but we saw a market decline kind of March, April down to 200 tests a month. Um, and actually the, the percent positivity increased from about 10% to 20%. So show, making us think, you know, we were probably missing some, right? And so um, I'm happy to report that in the most recent months, we're back up even higher. So 800 or so tests um, and kind of back down to our normal test positivity rate. So, um, you know, we, we saw this firsthand uh, yeah. in, in New Orleans. It's interesting that you say that because one of the uh, presentations, and I think this is where you really get to, and I'd be curious to hear how, how you all do that because one of the papers that came, or abstracts that came out of Rush, they have a, you know, in their EMR, they have a flag. And what they found was that there was a cliff, as I mentioned, for hep C testing um, in their clinics, but in their ED, it remained pretty stable. So it was very interesting to see differences between, right, in the ED, people are still coming in. And we know that people, that there were less strokes, less heart attacks, but when someone got there, it seemed because of the Kind of this had been in, kind of embedded already in, in the practice and the ED, they did not see that take as much of a hit. What they saw was those clinics where I think there was a big shift away from in-person care. But um, so what about in terms of uh, in terms of STI, other STI, I say other STIs um, for, for you all. I mean, hep C and hep, hep C testing in particular, HIV testing and EDs and things have become very ingrained. But what about what about other STIs? Yeah, so I think a number of challenges, and, and you just were talking about some of, of the rates. So they, they track, obviously, chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, and so at the presentation, or, or sorry, the conference, that CDC STD prevention conference in September, they did discuss kind of some of the numbers um, of gonorrhea, reported cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia. So back in January, February, kind of when you look at the rates in 2020 compared to 2019, we were about on par um, with where we were a year prior. Um, and then there was just a pretty substantial decline, March, April, mm -hmm. May. And, and it was interesting um, what data was presented. And all this was presented kind of with the caveat that the 2019 and 2020 numbers are in no way finalized. Um, but uh, what, what they saw is they, they kind of looked at projections um, and gave gonorrhea as an example. But so in April, of 2020, we were anticipated to have around 54,000 reported cases of gonorrhea. And what was actually reported was um, just a little, a little above 26,000. So that there was like this estimated case deficit of 27,000 cases of gonorrhea. And so now in the recent months, things have picked back up again. Um, and they made the point, you know, is this, uh, is this a backlog or are we really seeing these kind of pre-pandemic rates? And I, I just kind of, you asked about the challenges. I, I do want to go back for a minute and just talk because maybe a lot of uh, people on the call are familiar with the fact that um, kind of 2008 to 2012, we were seeing a lot of 
Um, funding cuts to STD clinics, um, you know, 10% uh, of STD clinics closed as a result of those funding clinics and even in more in, in a result of those um, funding declines. And then even um, in the past few years, 50% um, of STD clinics have reported that they have seen funding cuts. And so I think you, you take this public health infrastructure that's already very fragile and fragmented and you add a pandemic on top of that and you really have a public health crisis. So it, it's been really challenging, I think, across the country uh, to keep up. Um, and, and David uh, Harvey, who is the executive director of um, the National Coalition of STD Directors, um, he presented survey findings from STD clinics across the country. This was also at the STD Prevention Conference um, back in September. Um, but what they showed was when they surveyed STD clinics across the country in June, um, the respondents said that 78% of their STD workforce had been redeployed to COVID-19 efforts. Um, and so you think about like disease intervention specialist officers who are trained to do contact tracing for STDs are now being redeployed to do contact tracing for COVID-19. And of course, it's great we had that availability, um, but people are probably still having sex and there are probably still STDs that need to be diagnosed and treated. Um, and so, you know, we also know uh, one of the challenges, kind of what you were alluding to, Susanna, is just dealing with clinic closures, reduced um, clinic hours. Here, what we, we were closed for a short while. Um, I know in New York, they, they had, I think, they just only had one STD clinic up and running um, for a while. Um, one of the other findings from that survey I just mentioned um, back in March is that 83% of STD clinics across the country were deferring services and half really said they couldn't maintain their caseloads. So, you know, not only is COVID-19 really terrible for causing its own disease, but when it, it kind of soaks up these other resources, um, we face challenges elsewhere, you know, with respect to hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and, and STDs. Um, the other issue I want to talk about, and I could talk about this more later, but just a, a lack of availability of testing and test kits. Um, and then finally, some, some drug shortages uh, that, that may or may not have been a problem, but at least the FDA for a while, and, and I believe still is reporting shortages of azithromycin. Oh, geez. I hope that's not because people were using it for COVID. <laughs> you know, well, to be totally fair, I think when at least in New Orleans, when we started seeing all these cases, our, our frontline providers didn't know whether they should be treating concomitantly for community-acquired pneumonia. So I think that was one of the big, and we don't even have to go into the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin fiasco, but um, I think that was one of the big um, concerns, and, and I probably attributed to the azithromycin drug shortages. My impression is that, and I'd be interested to know if anyone kind of on um, on the call has seen azithromycin shortages, but these have been kind of local and not national shortages that have caused uh, major problems. Um, and so, uh, Susanna, we have a question. Is there an opportunity to catch up by linking or adding hepatitis C antibody testing to COVID testing or COVID vaccination? You know, I think that is a fantastic question. I was actually on a post-ASOD um, kind of conference discussing some of the, and really highlighting some of the, some of these issues. And a very similar question came up, which was, I think we've actually, we've seen, in fact, I think in many health systems, 
this approach to understand the seroprevalence of, of, uh, of COVID antibodies and, uh, and, and, and pretty broad COVID testing, um, antibody testing across health systems. And, you know, we now have a recommendation that uh, HCV, you know, should have universal screening. And so I think, I think there, there are some opportunities. I think it's a, it's a really great idea. It's a great thought. Um, I think that I, I, what I worry about is, uh, you know, selling this as, uh, as very important. And, and as you know, um, we've had a hard time uh, really getting people to uh, pick up and, 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 and carry the, the concept of HCV testing is really important. And um, I think this is an area where potentially we could do something very creative in terms of uh, the serologic, additional serologic testing that's going on right now. Um, there's actually a question that just came in as well, uh, uh, Meredith, that says, have you guys done telemed visits followed by sending at home test kits for STDs? Um, we've considered it, but we use Quest for Labs and they weren't familiar with those in our areas. And this kind of gets to the, exactly how are you managing this? I mean, this is the reality and what approaches have you managed in your clinics um, to kind of address this? And I'm happy to kind of talk about what we've done in the hep C area, but maybe how are you guys dealing with this? I think that's a great question in terms of the home testing kits. Yeah, so so we um, so we have an STD clinic that's operated. It's a shared partnership between LSU and Co Crescent Care, which is our federally qualified health center. Um, and so we did close for a brief period of time. Um, you might recall that New Orleans got hit really hard. Um, very early, kind of in March and April, um, had actually one of the steepest curves and one of the highest uh, mortality rates in the world. Um, and so we were closed during that initial phase, but opened back up relatively quickly. Um, and and kind of, I think, Susanna, you mentioned a hybrid approach. That's one thing we tried to do. Um, so trying to uh, talk to our patients, do a lot of the intake and collect history over the phone. Even, you know, patients are already have arrived to our clinic, um, but they'll we'll call and they'll sit in their cars and give their history um, to us just to kind of minimize that face-to-face -face encounter time, which makes everyone feel more comfortable. Um, and then kind of prioritizing who really needs to be seen in clinic, um, but, but certainly trying to maintain um, testing as best we can. Uh, and then, and then of course, treatment, uh, we have not had to defer to oral regimens. And, and I can talk about some of the, the CDC dear colleague letters um, in a minute, but uh, we fortunately have been able to kind of maintain um, giving injections in the clinic um, and seeing patients in person for treatment. I will talk for a minute about kind of the mail-in um, test kits, because I think, I think that came up. Um, so there are a lot of different platforms for doing mail-in testing. So you, people may be familiar with NERCs. They're a big company that uh, do um, uh, prep, mail, mail prep um, and, and contraceptive services. Uh, there's, I think it's um, my lab box. Uh, there's a company called Lemonade um, and Molecular Testing Laboratory. So there's a number of these kind of services. I think the biggest challenge with a lot of these are um, patient payments because a lot of them don't take insurance. Um, NERCs, I, I am uh, told, does accept Medicaid, but only in certain states. I think it's California, Texas, and Illinois. Um, so, and and some of these testing, you can you can go online and search, but some of them are rather expensive in the kind of hundreds of dollars, which is generally not affordable for a lot of our patient population. 
Um, and then it's hard. Sometimes they need physician orders. Sometimes they don't. But if you have a physician involved, it, there's a question of reimbursement comes up. So, so there are challenges related to payments. Um, I, I wanted to find, I think it's molecular uh, testing labs that's a Vancouver-based, um, Vancouver, Washington actually, based laboratory. Um, and they, they are the ones who are, um, I don't want to say endorsed by the CDC, but the CDC on their website online talks about this company in particular um, for, for mail-in STD testing. Um, and you, you do have to have a physician to order it, but it is approved by most insurances and it's CLIA licensed. Um, so I, I think they, these companies are being used. I saw some statistics like the, this, this one company in particular has doubled um, the rates of uh, mail-in order requests that they are receiving from 2019 to 2020. Um, so they are being used. I think they can be useful in certain settings, but I think there, there are challenges related to them. Um, and then I know that we had a question kind of before um, this, uh, the Q&A we're seeing right now about the acceptability, but there was a Cochrane review in 2015 um, that patients actually really referred the privacy and the simplicity and the security um, of this type of mail, these mail-in services and this, these kind of self-collection of swabs. And we know that self-collection of swabs are, are generally thought to be just as reliable as provider collected. Um, so. Anyway, I, I don't I, I don't know if you had a chance to browse the other questions while I was talking, Suzanne. I don't know if anything. Yeah, no, I think they're actually great. Uh, These are great questions. And I think um, I can probably address them all in one fell swoop because they're actually they're actually related. So one is that someone mentioned that in Canada they're using dried blood spot testing to try to capture multiple communicable diseases. And this is definitely, I mean, I think um, I've seen a number of actually research grants uh, proposing this method. I think it actually makes a ton of sense. Because, right, for, again, it gets to the home testing. Participants can do that in DBS at home, send it in, and then you can actually um, monitor these. So I think it's a great, a great approach. Um, but I think the next, the other two questions come in is like, so how do you manage um, patients with hepatitis C um, and, and, you know, ha have people just kind of stop treating? And I think there are some people who kind of said, look, it's a chronic disease and it's a chronic infection and it, whether it's delayed for six months, what's the big deal? But well, you know me, um, um, I'm a zealot, so uh, no, no better time to treat hep C than the, than, than the present. So, you know, I, I think what, what I would say is this pandemic happened in the setting of, um, of, of HC, HCV uh, DAA therapies that was primed to go to a telehealth or virtual approach to treatment. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, you know, the ASOD guidelines came out recently with an update um, of a kind of streamlined um, um, approach to treatment that does not require frequent testing, frequent monitoring, um, because we, one is we have some data to actually show that kind of more, more kind of minimal monitoring approaches can work, um, but also because we now have a lot of safety data with these regimens, and many of us feel quite confident, and we've been on the guidelines, you've seen them kind of slowly working away from the idea of testing labs every four weeks and things like that. So in addition, right, we have now two pangenotypic regimens. So the concept of, do you even need genotyping? And these are very safe regimens and, and, and as long as they're using the appropriate patient population. So um, so I would say that, uh, that, that, that that is exactly what we have done is we've essentially switched to a fully virtual telehealth approach to starting people on DAA therapies. Um, and then we do have them 
come in, if they haven't had any labs done, then we do have them come in as what, what I like to call a lab and lead visit. So basically a lot of the way that I've done my HCV care is I have a phone call or a virtual care call with my patient. Um, and we go through the conversation. We talk about what is needed. We talk about what the, um, what the, um, uh, how, how this is going to work in terms of receiving the medications in the mail, et cetera. Um, and then we get the drug out to them in the mail. If they need to come in for a visit, we have them do what we call a lab and leave where they literally drop into the lab, um, walk in the door, get their blood drawn and leave. And so they feel much safer about that limited right contact approach. And, and, and we have, I have not required my patients to come in for frequent uh, uh, monitoring. So this gets to the MinMon study and I'm sure uh, many of you heard about this. I mean, really a phenomenal study. So the MinMon study was just presented as an oral presentation uh, by Sunil Solomon from Johns Hopkins um, um, uh, last week at ASLD. And this was a study that was run by the ACTG um, and, um, and, and, and really took this approach of, um, we know that these drugs are safe. In this case, the, 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 the regimen uh, was um, uh, sofosbuvir velpatosphere, uh, right, a pangenotypic regimen. It's safe in people who have CKD or NSAID disease. It's safe in people who have decompensated liver disease. Um, and essentially, this was a single arm study. So there was no, there was no um, a control arm here, but patients were, you know, participants were essentially, they, had, they did have baseline labs, um, but they did not have baseline genotyping. And they were given the entire 12 week supply of drugs at the same time. Um, and then they were, they came back at around the SBR 12 visit. So they weren't, they didn't come back for 24 weeks. They were not seen again in person. There were no safety lab checks or anything like that. There was one check-in at week four on drug to check in on adherence via SMS or texting. And then there was a follow-up visit or like a, sorry, a, a follow-up text um, two weeks prior to their SBR 12 visit. And that is it. Right, so no frequent lab checks, nothing like that. And I do think that it's actually interesting that the ASLD had already moved to a simplification treatment strategy before the MinMon results were presented. And I do think that they fully support this. So, um, so, so this is, we've done this now for months, um, several months. Um, I'd say we probably started really getting to it. As I said, we, you know, when we, when we started shutting things down, we thought initially it would just be a delay. Once it had gone on for a couple of months, we realized this is no delay. And then we began getting people back in uh, for therapy via telehealth visit. So I do think that there's plenty of data now to support the safety of this approach. And I would certainly encourage folks to consider that. Yeah, we, um, I had sort of this natural experiment, right? Um, with this, when, when COVID happened, you may be aware that in Louisiana, we have this kind of Netflix or subscription yes. plan, but it, it really has made treating hepatitis C so easy for us. Um, and it's really, really phenomenal. Um, but you know, you, you saw a patient once you started, you were getting in the process of getting labs and then you, you didn't see the patient again for several months. And so, um, but anyway, just kind of a word on the, the, the program we have here, because it's been so phenomenal in making um, treatment decisions for us. And, and sorry, I'm kind of like Mike Pence over yeah, here. I think when that happened. Well, as I was say, I failed to mention that the overall SBR for the MinMon study was 95%. Yeah. Uh, and that is really phenomenal. Yeah. This was 400 people enrolled across the globe. And in fact, the majority of patients were enrolled from outside the United States. Um, and I do think it raises, so someone actually, again, on this session that I was on post ASLD, someone raised this exact question about Louisiana because of the Netflix model, which I just think is fantastic. And I think the leadership uh, around that for the state 
um, what was totally dead on. And because the question has come up now because of MinMon and several other studies is do you even need to bring people back for SBR12? Do you know what I mean? It, particularly in a, in, a, in a Netflix model approach where you are trying to get at some of those highest risk folks. Don't, I mean, ideally you have enough data to say, just give them the bottles and say, just take these pills and, you're, and, and you have a 95% chance of cure. And as far as we're concerned, that's, that's, you know, that's about as good as you're gonna get. So I, I think these I, are real questions that, yeah. Well, I think that approach makes sense for a, a lot of patients who maybe have challenges in coming back to clinic are, are kind of the, the patients that we would think are, are highest risk with ongoing drug use of, of transmitting HIV or hep C forward, right? And so they're the most important patients to treat right now. Um, Susanna, your friend Jules wants to know when will be, we be able to treat hepatitis C in pregnant women? Yeah, I think this is, I mean, I, I, Jules always has great questions. So, and this is another one. I mean, I think, look, we, we, we are getting there. Um, um, you know, Catherine uh, Chappelle, who is leading the efforts in, in getting uh, pregnant, getting, gathering that data for the safety of treating pregnant women um, and doing, doing those early phase studies. And I will also say that there's a move to hopefully get this through on a much larger scale through um, NIAID supported networks to really gather that data to make sure that we can do this safely. But I think this is a critical, I mean, in many ways, pregnant women are essentially the last population where we have not been able to make that move. And I think we have gotten access for so many other populations that this has got to be a priority. And, 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 and it, it certainly is uh, for many of us. And I think Catherine has been a great leader in, in trying to uh, you know, push, push that along. Okay, and I don't think we have any open questions right now. I, I do um, just kind of want to circle back. I mentioned um, the Dear Colleague letters that have gone out. I think many of us are aware of some of the limitations, um, and I, I tried to touch on those briefly a second ago, but with respect to STD testing um, and treatment. Um, but so the, the CDC has issued a series of these letters um, to providers to kind of keep them informed on best practices or kind of what, what they think we probably should be doing in the setting of the limitations of, of the COVID pandemic. Um, and so the, there were three letters that went out, the first in April, another in May, and then another in September. And so I, I kind of wanted to review those quickly in case people had not seen those um, and, and kind of ask, answer any questions that might come up. Um, because, you know, it's it's different times and, and we're kind of at the mercy of kind of what COVID's doing in these clinic closures. Um, but so the first letter that they sent out in April um, had asked us to, when it came, came to screening, um, that, that uh, when needed, we could defer asymptomatic screening um, in, in routine, just with routine screening visits. Um, until the emergency response was over, but to please keep in mind some sp specific populations that we shouldn't um, neglect. So those with STD symptoms, of course, they're gonna be symptomatic. Those who um, are not symptomatic, but have a contact, um, an STD contact uh, should also be tested. And then of course, any individuals at risk for complications. Um, so women who have vaginal discharge or abdominal pain, you're concerned about PID. Um, pregnant women with syphilis, um, should you should always try to see. Um, and then individuals with symptoms concerning for neurosyphilis, you always wanna get those folks in, try to see them, test them. And of course, I think we all know um, that 
that penicillin is the only treatment we should be using in pregnant women with syphilis. Um, the other recommendation that came out in the April letter was that if clinics aren't seeing people in person, um, then form partnerships with other clinics who are. So we've done some of that. I, I mentioned kind of our um, partnership, our, our, uh, the way our STD clinic in Louisiana or in New Orleans um, is formed, it's, it's already a partnership between the Federally Qualified Health Center and our academic institution. Um, and so we've stayed, m for the most part, open to see patients, whereas the FQHC and some of the other local clinics have only been seeing telemedicine. So, you know, if there's a patient who they talk to on the phone or see through um, a, a virtual visit, if there's a concern for that that person needs testing, they'll send them to us to actually come in and have that in-person testing. So I think those partnerships are especially important in these times when other clinics may be closed or just have have these limitations, you know, related to telehealth or telemedicine. Um, and then uh, the, the CDC also kind of outlined these syndromes that should be managed by phone or telehealth visits. Um, and, and I actually printed this um, little cheat sheet out. It's from um, the California Prevention Training Center. But it, if anybody wants to go online and download it, it really nicely just gives kind of what the preferred regimens are when you can treat with injection medications and when you need to use orals only. Um, but it kind of classifies these syndromes. So like the proctitis syndrome, the genital ulcer disease syndrome, the vaginal discharge syndrome, and kind of what you should be thinking about um, can you, should you be ordering tests in those situations and what, what treatments um, would be preferred and what, what you might have to resort to if there are clinic closures. Um, and then the May letter from the CDC really um, kind of said, hey, we do, we do uh, really appreciate the idea of expedited partner therapy or EPT um, as a harm reduction approach. And, and for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's you know, I'm the provider, I see someone who I diagnosed with an STD, and I offer to treat their partner without seeing the partner or even talking to the partner. And so I either provide a prescription directly to the partner, or I hand over the medicine um, to the patient to, to deliver themselves to the partner. Um, and so I think that's an approach that we should be um, using aggressively, or at least we should be talking to our patients about partner notification very aggressively. Um, but the May letter did kind of say, hey guys, maybe don't use this for syphilis. You know, there are lots of concerns um, it, it, that probably should be as, uh, addressed in person or at least by phone or telemedicine um, when it comes to syphilis, uh, especially kind of among MSM or other populations that are at higher risk for HIV, they need to be assessed and tested for other things. Um, so in the setting of syphilis, please avoid um, EPT. And then finally, uh, the September letter addressed um, the lack of testing kits that we're seeing. Um, and so many of you know there are shortages of, of gonorrhea and chlamydia testing. Um, our clinic has had a few um, times where we were running really low on the urine NAT testing. And so we had to start doing um, urethral swabs for men. And at, at this point, all the men coming into our clinic, they know better. They know that they shouldn't have to do that. So they really weren't pleased. Um, but I, I think uh, centers across the country are seeing um, shortages in these testing kits. Um, and so what, what the CDC um, recommended uh, in this most recent September letter is that we do um, test 
certain populations when we can. Um, so for asymptomatic women, especially if they're pregnant or they're less than 25 or greater than 25 with risk factors, um, that they should do the vaginal swab for gonorrhea, chlamydia, NAT testing. Um, for MSM, we should prioritize extragenital testing um, and above uh, urine testing. And, and actually, um, if, if, if you're very limited, do rectal tests um, above even pharyngeal samples. Um, and then for men with symptoms of urethritis, uh, what, what they suggested, and I think a lot of STD clinics actually have the capacity to do, um, is methylene blue or gram staining to look for diplococci and then treat for gonorrhea accordingly. And that, that approach really does have a lot of sensitivity in, and specificity in men um, with uh, discharge. Um, and then finally, um, for women with cervicitis or PID symptoms and men with proctitis, those, those folks should really be treated empirically, um, but certainly test if, if you have testing available. Um, and then uh, the empiric treatment of contacts, which I uh, just sort of touched on. Um, and you know you can forego testing in those situations if, if you're really limited with respect to the test kits. So, I mean, I think it's great to, I mean, I, actually, as you're talking, it, it raises some things. So one is I'd say just an app, like it's uh, 548 um, on, on the East Coast. Um, so uh, folks can feel free to put Q questions in because we're kind of in the Q&A phase and we're happy to take more questions as they come. Uh, but if you guys don't put in questions, then we're going to keep on talking. <laughs> um, but it, but it, it, it did raise this, you know, as you talk through this, we, we've talked about how um, as, as clinicians and, and as patients, We've all had to be creative about making sure that we kind of begin to just move forward and make sure healthcare is moving forward, right, um, in, in the pandemic. But I do think some of the things that you raise, which is you have to also, in addition to just kind of going to telehealth or thinking about lab and leave visits and doing some of the other things that we've done to decrease to kind of risk mitigation, right, you know, not using the waiting rooms, calling people in from their car. I think there are some other things that, that, that probably need to be done that are very efficient, um, kind of as you mentioned, like just treating treating partners or treating contacts, um, maybe not the way we would always do it, because there are some dramatic changes we have to make in response to the pandemic. And you know, as you know, we we have heard, um, and I think it's just it's horrendous because you look at the numbers and the uh, the mortality um, um, in the setting of the pandemic related to opioid overdoses is uh, is on track right now for 2020 to be the highest it's been, um, I think, ever. Um, and, you know, this has been very, very difficult um, uh, to, to kind of wrap your head around. And I think some people think that it's, uh, it's just increased usage. Uh, but, you know, I, there, I, think it's, I, I think it's probably not that simple. And what several studies have now suggested um, and the, um, and the um, AMA kind of put out a very urgent letter to uh, to providers is that, you know, when, with these shutdowns, with the conversion to, um, uh, to telehealth or, or, or virtual care, that may not be, in some ways, it's opened up access, access for some groups, but it also has caused significant isolation. And right. for a number of our patients with addiction, um, you know, kind of getting in, and, and particularly because of the rules um, and requirements around a provider being able to see someone for addiction for the first time, being able to write that prescription, right, for, uh, for buprenorphine therapy for the first time, the rules are quite tight. And I think if we continue to follow those same rigid rules, 
then there are many people at need who cannot get access to what they need, the care they need. That will, that, and so, so in that setting, they are going to potentially use more. Or I think one of the, one of the, one of the um, posters that we saw at ASOD was that they weren't necessarily injecting more, but their injected, injection practices had moved away from harm reduction strategies um, because of the, 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 the concern for shutdowns of harm reduction centers or limited access to those centers just based on the ability to keep them running. So this is a big, big deal. Um, it's obviously a, a, a devastating situation. And this is, I think, where groups like SAMHSA, DEA have actually put out changes in terms of their guidance on recognizing that we can't do business as usual. And there, need to be some there needs to be some flexibility in what we are able to do. And I think that is something that we all need to look for in our practices to, to recognize that the level of isolation right now going on for many of our, our fellow citizens, and in particular, many of our sickest um, uh, it, you know, in our communities is actually has been very devastating, leading to worsening uh, uh, mental health disease, worsening um, uh, addiction because of the lack of access. So I think I think that is a it's it's something we all have to think about. Um, right. And so, Susie, you kind of you're the hepatitis expert, and your patient population is more often um, people who inject drugs. Me being somebody who does um, STDs and HIV, I focus tend to focus on on MSM populations. And so um, there was one study uh, that came out pretty early on, I think in April. Um, in AIDS and behavior, uh, it was Dr. Um, Sanchez, I believe. But so um, they surveyed uh, many MSM, I think approximately a thousand, and they um, found increased levels of anxiety and, and decreased quality of life, of life in about 70%. Um, approximately a fifth of them had lost their job related to COVID. Um, and, and really at the same time, um, they were actually having less sex, so fewer sexual partners, less opportunities for sex, um, but they, they weren't seeing, uh, they, I think a, a quarter were saying that they had lost access or, or had decreased access to STD um, services for, for treatment um, and screening. And, and so you, you kind of see these numbers and you just think, wow, like this pandemic is just really having this profound impact on what we do. And I, I just want to highlight what you just, or kind of what I took away from what you just said is that we as providers, I think, um, need to be innovative. And I've been so proud of how innovative some of my colleagues have been and, and kind of some of these presentations I've seen on, on a, a national level, um, but, but really on the part of patients and providers being innovative um, with new models of care, but then also we as providers just being flexible, right? And, and if there's ways that we can decrease barriers in access for our patients, um, just be more flexible, less, less rigid, um, you know, if, if that works, then, then we need to realize that and carry it forward. So even when this whole pandemic is over, I think there's so much we can learn um, and take with us uh, just in terms of the changes we make to our practices and, you know, the stringency of guidelines and, and t testing requirements and, um, and visits, frequent visits and, and, and all of those things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I was dealing with it. I answered a couple of questions. So one is the MinMon study was highlighted on NATSAP. Woohoo, thanks, Jules. <clears throat> so anyone interested in the MinMon study should be able to find it on NATSAP. Um, and then actually there was another question that Jules had about the genotypes. It's actually re it really interesting as we've <clears throat> looked at the, 
change in hep C genotypes over time, we have certainly seen a shift away from one and, uh, and into uh, genotype three. You know, we have certainly heard descriptions, uh, particularly from the global trials uh, and those trials doing uh, full sequencing of some novel genotypes. And um, I have not had any of those in, um, in my cohort in the United States. I've not seen significant reporting of those in the US. Most of those reported have been in global trials. Um, I will tell you that for the MinMon study, uh, we have not completed sequencing yet. That sequencing is ongoing. And for the 20 people who did have failure, I think we will be able to get at whether any of those were any of those novel genotypes. Um, uh, but Meredith, maybe uh, we have five minutes left. So thanks folks for keeping us um, busy with questions. These are fantastic questions. So um, again, our, our mentor, uh, Dr. Chuck Hicks, um, mentioned kind of getting to this question, this point that you just made, but maybe elaborating a bit more. We both live in states where there are large non-urban populations who have limited ability to do telehealth. Um, uh, suggestions to the for this population as regards to HCV, um, STI, HIV testing, and management. So, what, how, how do we get to these folks? Um, yeah, so Louisiana has a large rural population. Um, even really in the setting of Louisiana, I think we had some challenges. My um, clinic, my HIV clinic, uh, I had some challenges with telemedicine when we first uh, converted to, to doing telemedicine because I couldn't get in touch with patients, their phones weren't working, all that. And, and we kind of termed this the digital divide. And, you know, the last thing we talked about, oh, telemedicine is wonderful. We can now um, write 90-day refills. We can see patients. They, it's so convenient for them. They love it, love it, love it. Well, we, we actually lose a, a significant chunk of our population. And so I think we have to be very cognizant of that. I don't know that I have a, 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 a um, kind of a magic bullet solution, um, but I, I do think we have to be careful that the, the interventions that we apply don't kind of make these inequities or these disparities even more stark. Um, and so I think we have to be careful, but with respect to the rural population, I will say we have rolled out teleprep in um, Louisiana and we've been able to reach folks from all nine regions of the state. Um, and this has been a partnership with our uh, public health. It's really been an initiative um, through Louisiana Public Health Department. Susanna, you, you mentioned again, the um, Netflix model. Our, we have an amazing um, public health department in Louisiana. We're, we're very lucky to have that, but they um, have really uh, spearheaded this, uh, this great teleprep program and been able to, to reach um, patients in, in rural areas. So, so kind of taking that model, um, I think the STD mail-in testing kits, um, because we are a Medicaid expansion state, if we could find um, a, an online, online or, or mail-in platform um, that accepts Medicaid, I think that would be a really um, amazing way to, to reach a lot of patients for, for HIV, Hep C, STD testing. Um, and, and then, you know, certainly, Susanna, some of the things you mentioned with respect to hepatitis C, I mean, we are we are doing it here. I mean, we are treating and treating and treating, and it's, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, so I don't know, Susanna, do you have anything to add? No, I mean, I think, but I think it's a really great question. It's a great point that when in the setting of a pandemic, it, it really begins to shine a light on the, on the significant disparities. And I think we've seen this as it relates to children in school or, or well, to be fair, children out of school, not having access to internet, not having access to 
um, uh, to 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 be able to do the things that they need to do um, when they're being when they're being schooled at home. And I think these are critical to ensuring that we have appropriate infrastructure. And and I do think again it gets to thinking outside the box. So we've yeah. talked for a very long time that you know the concept of the patient coming to you is something that we really need to get away from. And so it gets more to us going to the patient. So I do think that there we've already begun doing this in the setting of COVID to, to care for people with COVID going into their homes um, and, and being able to offer, you know, home-based approaches or, or, or you know, we, we talk about this, we see this across the globe in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, vans or mobile, mobile units, right? I mean, I, I will say no one ever likes to admit it, but the VA does some things really, really well. Um, and I'm a VA provider. And I will say that the mobile units have been very successful within the VA. There are lots of examples of how mobile units have been very successful. Um, and, you know, another thing that the VA has done is that they, um, they've been, you know, working in telehealth for quite some time. And in fact, we do have a lot of, uh, of, of rural uh, veterans. And, and in fact, we send them iPads. Um, and then they send them back when their visit is over. And so there are many things that you can do, but it really is thinking outside that box. Um, but, uh, but I think when, when we, when we want to be creative, we really can make these things happen. Yeah. And, and so it's five o'clock. So I think that was a very good uh, closing statement, Susanna. The other thing I, I do just want to add quickly is kind of, kind of leaving with this um, idea of, of being hopeful. But I think that, that you, you said shine the light. COVID has shown the light on so many different things. But I think one of those things is our very um, fractured, fragile public health infrastructure. And, and so I think, um, you know, with respect to that, I, with COVID, I think that um, really, I, I hope that a lot of people have seen the value of having um, a solid public health system. And, and then going forward, there will be further investment in our public health system. So um, that's one of my hopes. I think, um, you know, hopefully we've tried to say how um, the tough can keep going and we can persevere through all of this, um, these very interesting times. Uh, and, and again, we do know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we just uh, have a little bit of a ways to go before we get there. Um, did you want to say anything else, Susanna? No, I think we can wrap up. I just want to, this has been super fun. I've really enjoyed doing this with you, Meredith, and it's great to see your face. <laughs> um, and I, I thank the audience. It's been great. Lots of great questions and, and, and good dialogue. Um, so I really uh, appreciate everyone participating um, in all of this. And, um, and then also just making sure that you all know that the, um, this will be available via podcast, as Meredith already said. And there's the link right there. Um, so and thanks I again. Uh, Dr. Steinberg's note. I will. I will be in touch. Um, yeah, absolutely. So thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks to Don Jacobson, Jose Francisco, for uh, organizing this, and for all the people who have attended on your Monday evening. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.